The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 10, The Possibilities of a New Democracy Under a People's Constitution. Sydney, December 2022. Australia can establish a safe and prosperous future for all its peoples, but only if it reconstitutes itself as an inclusive, full democracy, one in which the people have their rightful share of power and can establish a much better relationship of trust and productive collaboration with those they elect to represent them in Parliament. The current constitution cannot make that possible simply because it excludes the people from their essential share of power, the power of self-determination, and from the agency that can only be exercised if they and their will are fully and respectfully acknowledged as the source of sovereignty. General opinion is that the Constitution is based on an idea that representative democracy, if combined with adherence to a principle of responsible government, will somehow be sufficient to safeguard the public interest and protect the people from abuse of power by the elected and by any unelected head of state. But in reality, the Australian Constitution is silent on democracy, representative or otherwise, and on responsible government. And it is equally silent on the public interest and obligations of parliaments and governments to the people. Opportunities for disregard of the national interest and abuse of power abound under the current constitution. In its silence about the people of the nation, except in reference to the fact that their consent is periodically needed in elections for a handover of power and their consent is needed in referendums for a change to the constitution itself, the current Australian constitution does nothing more and nothing less than reduce the Australian people to subjection to a sovereignty that has no reciprocal obligation to them. Power, as it is arranged in the Constitution, is for their subjection, not their self-determination. And when this is combined with the fact that the public interest features nowhere in the Constitution, it is not described in any terms and isn't even mentioned as something to be respected, we have the makings of a distribution of power that amounts to little more than the tyranny of the few, a very tiny few. On the surface, our representative democracy appears to be among the stronger and more advanced in the world, but not only does the Constitution fail to underpin that strength, it also opens our democracy to threat. Over the decades since 1901, the Constitution has been easily undermined by a series of laws and court cases that have left it seriously weakened in terms of the protections it should provide against the abuse of power. I have recorded in earlier chapters no less than five major high court rulings where it has become apparent that the judicature, which is supposed to be able to ensure that the parliaments and executive governments operate in accordance with the constitution and do not abuse their powers, has found itself unable to protect Australians from racism, human rights abuses, breaches of international law and political exclusion, particularly by federal governments that have been able to force through laws that legitimise their power to behave in a manner most 21st century Australians would consider to be abhorrent. In short, the Constitution allows the making of laws 
which undermine political equality in our democracy. As such, Australia does not have a structure in its polity capable of controlling the abuse of power, nor does it have a democracy capable of supporting Australians as they attempt to chart a safe course to a better future. Australia's future prospects depend on whether it can mobilise the full capacity of its population. And to succeed in this regard, we will need as a minimum to ensure that every single one of us is included in society with full and equal political, civil, economic, social and cultural rights. As it is worded now, the Constitution does not facilitate that inclusion. And until such time as it affirms our most sincerely held values as an indissoluble nation, the values that hold us together and define what we stand for, until such time as it enshrines our human rights as equals, until such time as it transparently sets out the government's obligations to the people in observance of those rights, and until such time as it provides a guarantee that any and all of us shall be able to have a voice in how the nation should chart a course to a better future, until all those things happen, the Constitution will not be an enabling instrument for Australia's advancement, either as an economically fortunate or democratically advanced country. Throughout this book, I have asserted that if our democracy is to be strengthened to the extent necessary to realise the full potential of our social capital, Australians will need to be able to establish terms of trust with those they elect. A key objective in this has been to improve the quality of relationships between those who currently have no power under the Constitution, once they've voted, and the tiny few who currently have it all. Those relationships cannot be improved unless terms of trust between the electors and the elected are specified and specified in a manner that grants the people a reasonable share of power as a player, or preferably as an acknowledged rightful and equal partner with other essential players in our representative democracy. By this I do not mean that the people should be accorded an overweening share of power. That would result in an obviation of representative democracy. It may risk replacing the tyranny of the few under which we currently suffer, with the tyranny of the many, and if the many have no efficient way of organising themselves, it is likely that Australians would be no happier under that arrangement. Fortunately, though, it is not necessary to introduce a new tyranny to the structure and workings of our democracy. There is no need to destabilise representative democracy itself. We simply need to add a deliberative capacity into it so that we can overcome the worst shortcomings of a purely representative system. We need to add our voices to our votes. We need to build a representative democratic framework in which our consent to be governed by a parliament can still be freely and willingly granted, but on terms of trust that specify what counts for us as decency and fairness in both the relationship between the electors and the elected and in the national project itself. This has led me to suggest that it is a necessity for everyday Australians to be able to assemble themselves so that they can develop those terms of trust into what should amount to a coherent statement about the sovereign will of the people. This statement should contain two different types of expression of the sovereign will. That is, it should enshrine some constants 
things that are likely to be constant through time, and an acknowledgement that aspirations, things which are likely to change through time, are also central to the will of the people and should therefore be expressed and taken seriously enough to form the basis of the agendas of the parliaments we elect. In relation to the constants, the Constitution should contain commitments that the Australian people and those they elect are both willing to affirm as central to the sovereign will of the people because they are fundamental to our humanity. Our human rights and obligations to each other fall into that category if we accept that they are the natural birthright of all. And since we know that it is the Australian Government's official policy that human rights are indeed universal, indivisible, inherent as the birthright of all human beings, enjoyed simply by reason of their humanity rather than granted or bestowed, and inalienable in the sense that they cannot be given up or taken away, we should be able to expect that no elected member of Parliament will have difficulty in joining with the Australian people in affirmation of those rights and obligations. In fact, the Constitution should enshrine our right to demand that affirmation. Our values as members of the Australian nation also fall into this category of things that are likely to be fairly constant through time. For instance, we might assume that peace is an enduring value, as is democracy. However, regardless of which values Australians finally settle on, they too should be affirmed by both electors and the elected, and oaths of office should be developed which reflect commitment to those values. In relation to aspirations, the important thing is to ensure that the Constitution enables us to express them and express them in a manner that enables parliaments and governments to scope policies and legislation that will maximise our chances of realising those aspirations. In short, the Constitution should enshrine what I have called a process for expression of the national people's voice, in addition to an Indigenous voice. Both these voices must be enshrined if parliaments are to have the best chance of comprehending the full character of the new nation that would emerge under a people's constitution and the full significance of its expressed sovereign will. That will, once it is expressed, is likely to paint a picture of Australia's future as a post-colonial, post-monarchical nation where political equality is the foundation of stability in the democracy. This should pertain particularly if the sovereign will is enshrined as a combination of national values, human rights and obligations, a national voice and an Indigenous voice. With that combination of empowering commitments, Australians can give themselves the best chance to overcome the limitations and destructive aspects of representative democracy inasmuch as they will have the potentials to install a fuller system of responsible government than we have now. At present, Australians may take it for granted that we have a system of responsible government because, as the Australian government solicitor has said, quote, under this principle of responsible government, the Crown, represented by the Governor-General, acts on the advice of its ministers who are in turn members of and responsible to the Parliament, unquote. But it is an unfortunate feature of this description of our system for responsible exercise of power that the responsibility appears to stop at the Parliament. There is no mention of accountability extending through from the Parliament to the people. 
they may as well not exist once they have voted. However, if we can find a way to add the people into the picture, creating a loop of accountability which ensures that not only is power shared, but is shared responsibly, then the basis for collaboration and mutual respect between partners to that collaboration can be established. This will jettison our current form of state, the Hobbesian unitary sovereign state, but not in such a way as to rob the society of an orderly form of governance. The combination of values, rights, obligations and voices, once enshrined, can circumvent the problems that may arise from more disruptive, or shall I say, revolutionary or incendiary approaches to reform of governance because it expands the power of a player who currently has none and makes that player integral to the deliberations of those who in the end must make the decisions on laws and policies. In that arrangement, disorder, with all its implications of turmoil, inequality, discrimination and the demise of democracy, is avoided. The effect can only be to strengthen Australia's democracy. Champions of constitutional reform have for decades called for the inclusion of a statement of Australian values and an affirmation of human rights in the Constitution. But the suggestion that the people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, be given the power to voice their aspirations in a coherent statement of their preferred national project and to have their values, rights and voices acknowledged by those they elect as the sovereign will, is a step the nation may take that is well beyond the previous ideas of how democracy may be strengthened. It might be regarded as a quantum leap in the evolution of democracy and as the final confirmation that it is the form of government most likely to be truly of the people, by the people, for the people. This extra step will be essential to Australians and to those they elect for a number of reasons, not least of which is the fact that time is running out for Australians to protect themselves from further loss of rights, further threats to their security in times of international conflict and further disasters due to climate change. But it is also likely to be essential if Australians are to be able to restore their health and well-being to levels enjoyed prior to the attacks on our social security system sponsored by governments and corporations touting neoliberal policies of privatisation and deregulation. Those policies have been designed to systematically reduce, possibly to zero, any obligation governments have accepted in the past to provide for the economic, social and cultural well-being of Australians. However, in what might be reasonably taken to indicate a rejection of governments that seek to evade obligations to the people, Australians happened to elect a new federal government in 2022, which campaigned on a policy of building well-being. And true to its word, that government began to speak of the need for a national conversation on well-being and how it might be secured. As the Labor government's treasurer, Jim Chalmers, signalled on the introduction of his first budget in 2022, Quote, I am hoping that the Australian people are up for a serious conversation about how we pay for the services that they need and deserve and have a right to expect. Unquote. Mr Chalmers was speaking in the context of needing to make decisions about the extent to which Australians should fund these services by taxation. And in that context, the conversation that might be expected is likely to be narrower than the conversations necessary to develop a more secure future for Australia. 
But unless a national conversation on well-being can be conducted in the context of what well-being actually means for Australians, then a treasurer is not likely to achieve much more than a grudging acceptance by taxpayers that they will be required to foot the bill for whatever services the government is prepared to include in what will probably be dressed up as a well-being budget, but which may not deliver the sort of well-being Australians actually want. By contrast, conversations which start from the point where Australians are asked what they want in terms of well-being are far more likely to result in a specification of a standard of living that can be financed with the willing consent of Australians. As such, if the Constitution includes a requirement for governments to enable those sorts of conversations on an ongoing basis, as though they are part of a normal cyclical dialogue about how best to fund the whole national project at the lowest long-run cost, then those governments are more likely to position themselves to realise the aspirations of Australians, and everyone is likely to get more value for their money. Everyone is also more likely to protect the interests of future generations. This implies that the sort of national conversation desired by Mr Chalmers will be more likely to benefit Australians and governments themselves if it is preceded by a process of collaborative development of a national long-term integrated plan, a planning process that may only be securely established if it too is preceded by an acknowledgement in the Constitution of the value of the voices of Australians. Aside from the potential of a people's constitution to offer Australians the benefit of a safer passage to a sustainable future, where well-being and security are reliably available for all, there is, of course, one other major benefit that can accrue. We can achieve a coexistence of sovereignties based on self-determination. With a people's constitution, power can be distributed to enable diverse people and groups of people to find a way to live and prosper together. For those who prefer the monarchical form of state, this is likely to be very challenging. But this is where the privilege of living alongside the oldest continuing culture in the world comes to our aid. Their tragic experience of dispossession has led First Nations peoples to a deep understanding of the value of self-determination, an understanding that is both intellectual and visceral. As Dominic O'Sullivan has observed, the Indigenous peoples of Australia know that it is essential to their survival that they be able to count on their right to self-determination. Constant and free exercise of that right is fundamental to their political capacity to contribute equally to working out the terms of their membership of the nation-state. They must also, says Professor O'Sullivan, quote, have the capacity to exercise self-determination within their own political structures, unquote. Those structures, which are likely to be organised at the level of local Indigenous communities, can easily and productively sit alongside the political structures of the nation-state to deliver a level of well-being to Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders that they have hitherto been denied in their subjection to a state which simply has not recognised them at all. Non-Indigenous Australians can learn much from this. They can learn, for instance, that self-determination is an enabling, even invigorating, right, and they are as much in need of it as Indigenous people. 
It empowers individuals and peoples, but without denying their absolutely essential dependency on each other. As Professor O'Sullivan has said, quote, Self-determination is not absolute autonomy. It constitutes reconciliation as a politics of possibility, unquote. He elaborates on this by saying, quote, One knows that self-determination is occurring when Indigenous peoples find that there is a reconfiguration of state power opening new and meaningful spaces of political opportunity. Those spaces are opened when public sovereignty is truly the people's authority and when all people, not just some, share that authority and have a meaningful say in determining what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be one who deliberates. Unquote. In this rendition of Indigenous Knowing, we can gain an insight into what it means to live in a full democracy, the privileges it showers on us and the responsibilities it simultaneously imposes. For those politicians of the future who aspire to the privileges of democracy, it should be evident that all they need to do to attain and hold the privilege of elected office is to be willing to share both power and responsibility with the people who elect them and to share it in a deliberative framework, a framework in which rational discourse is made possible by the accessibility of collaborative planning processes and simple respect for the voices that are exercised within those processes. Contemplating this framework, we may imagine a new democracy, one which offers the possibility of living our values to the fullest. With a people's constitution that enshrines values, rights, obligations, or call them responsibilities if you will, and voices, Australians can set themselves on a path to empowerment that will enable them to secure the future they actually want, a future of well-being, safety, security, connection and love. In other words, a truly indissoluble commonwealth. Realisation of this commonwealth is vital to our survival in the face of global heating, violence and economic disruption. But that realisation will require Australians, the electors and the elected alike, to identify with their constitution, to see themselves in it, and most importantly, to recognise the coexistence of their sovereignties, the sovereignty of the peoples who sprang from the ancient heart of the land, alongside the sovereignty of the people who came from elsewhere to make their home here, the sovereignty of the many in the one. That sort of coexistence can only be achieved if the people are written indelibly into their own constitution. And until they are, until they own it, until they are acknowledged and acknowledge themselves as the source of sovereignty, the oath that those elected to Parliament may take will be as hollow, unreliable and faithless as the oath they swear now to Queen Victoria, her heirs and successors. Australians need those they elect to take an oath to be loyal to them and to their constitution, just as the Australian Republican movement has suggested. But until we are ready to own a people's constitution, until we can see that we are the centre of it, that we and those we love are the purpose of the nation and of its formation as a diverse, indissoluble whole, the elected will be taking an oath that is as false as the one they are required to faithlessly mouth now. 
If as a nation we wish to start again, and this time give ourselves the best chance that all our children and all those we love will flourish, there is no better time to accept the gracious invitation from First Nations to walk with them towards a better future. Our willing assent to a people's constitution which enshrines our political equality by means of enshrining our values, rights, obligations and voices is the key to that better future. We are limited in taking up this invitation to empower all ourselves only by the extent of our imagination. We are not limited by any lack of means, practical incapacity or legal strictures. We are not even limited by political short-sightedness. That will always be present, but it need not obscure the truth for us, the truth that our nation is what we make it. Our constitution makes the nation. It makes us as a unified we. But that does not mean it governs us. Instead, we govern it. We are its masters, and in rewriting it, we can make it and the nation into whatever we want at the behest of our own sovereign will. And we can keep remaking it in whatever shape we think necessary. Manning Clark may have imagined and hoped in 1977 that the bitter experience of Australia's First Nations may, by the 2020s, have culminated in the realisation by Indigenes and non-Indigenes that it is time to walk around the brick wall of that anachronism of contemporary Australia, the Federal Constitution. But he might not have imagined how easy it can be to walk around it. Such an invitation, as First Nations have issued, is easy to accept once it is clear that there are ways to give all Australians a voice and rights of self-determination that support a diverse collective, a polity of the many and the one. Manning Clark longed for a time when the Australian people might redraft their constitution as their own, not as a British or Yankee constitution. He longed for a time when, quote, having at last liberated themselves from their own barbaric past, having shed the last vestiges of colonialism and provincialism, they will at long last have the faith in their power to make their own history. Unquote. A people's constitution structured to enshrine their values, rights and voices can enable all Australians to build that necessary faith in themselves the power to make their own history. It is to be hoped, then, that they will accept the invitation to take rightful positions of power within their democracy by means that can only be offered under a people's constitution. <laughs>